Let's pray. Father, please speak through your word. I pray that you would speak to us about Jesus, about his death and resurrection, and the wonder of being a part of his kingdom. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the years that I was in uh, living in France, uh, one of the things that uh, I notice is that when you speak to someone and ask them in France how they're doing, they're very, very unlikely to say to you directly that they're doing well. And this is not because they're not going to tell you that they're doing well. It's just not how they talk. They don't say, I'm great. They say, not bad. Very common. And if you are doing kind of bad, they will say, not really bad. They, they tend to always have an opposite and softening effect to the way that they, they want to say it. When I first moved to Maryland, I had to work really hard to get used to being told at a cash register or somewhere when I said, thank you, not a problem. It took a long time of living here for that to sound so natural that now I believe that not a problem means you're welcome. I may have been even so enculturated that I may have said it myself, right? So now I hear it with different ears. No problem doesn't mean I'm offended that you thanked me for something you should have done yourself. It means, hey, there is no obstacle between me helping you, uh, me and you, and me helping you. So I want you to be. Uh, feel okay about it. And we just have to accept sometimes that when we read the Bible, some of the things that Jesus says are confusing to our ears because of the way that he says them is with some extreme exaggeration sometimes. And those exaggerations are so common to Jesus, we must just assume that's how he talks. That's the kind of way that Jesus... Maybe it's the way his culture talked. Maybe it's the way that he himself developed uh, his strategy for communicating with people. But it is God's desire that that was how Jesus would talk during those days. And our in job in interpreting is not to see not a problem and say, well, that's offensive. We need to hear it for what he means. And let me give you an example before I return to the passage from the lectionary. In Luke 14, now great crowds accompanied him and he turned to them and said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That is hard for us to hear. But it's not hard if you understand what he means by it. Can you imagine someone saying to you, if you are a, a great chocolate lover, now I know there's a rare person out there that dislikes chocolate, but it's, most people like chocolate, and some people you know, love it as long as the day is long, right? 
Imagine telling somebody you had a new confection that was going to blow the lid off of chocolate. And you said to them, you think you like chocolate? Wait till you've tried what I have. You will hate chocolate. Well, you're never going to hate chocolate if you're a chocolate lover. But in comparison, you're going to be willing to say, oh, now, now that I've tried this, I will never, you know, I will never say that chocolate is the best. And that's the point Jesus is getting at with that hard saying of you need to hate even your wife and children. Because Jesus would, Jesus would take you, drag you before his father for, for a rebuke if you hated your wife and children. Right? Because the, the Bible tells us that if, if you love, if you want to preach the gospel with your life, you do it by loving your wife as you love yourself. Because Jesus laid down his life for his bride, the church. And so we lay down as husbands our lives for our wives as a preaching of the gospel. So Jesus doesn't mean hate your wife. He means in any situation where you have to choose between Jesus and anything else, Jesus versus anything, Jesus better win. So if it's Jesus versus your wife, better be Jesus. And that's okay. That's a good thing. You should love your wife with your life, and you should love Jesus comparatively more, such that it would seem that you hate your wife, which you don't, so you super love Jesus. And that's the kind of a thing that I want to point out. Jesus says when we get to a verse like Luke 10, 20. And this is not going to be as hard to hear as the one about your husbands and your wives and mothers and fathers and children. Because I, this one is about rejoicing over the power to cast out demons. And most of us don't care about that. But Jesus says to his recently sent out disciples who have come back overjoyed, surprised, freaked out that they were able to cast out demons and heal people. Newly appointed ministers of the gospel. Jesus, even the demons listen to us. And he says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I don't for a second believe that Jesus is telling them, I want you to pipe down about having had success in ministry. I want you to feel bad about obeying me and seeing it work. I want you to feel no joy over God working through you for the glory of the kingdom of Jesus. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you think that's great? You know what should really knock your socks off? That you know me. That is the real cherry on top of this dessert. Is that you are a member of my kingdom. So he's just gathered people. In chapter 9, he had the disciples, the 12, go out. And in chapter 10, he's gathered 70 or 72 others. It's hard. Some of your Bible translations will say 70, and some of them will say 72. Um, and I'll talk about that in a second. But 
what he has done is he sent out this extra group of ministers to go prepare the way into all the towns before he begins going around in his ministry. And he is showing miracles. First, he's sending out his emissaries to go do miracles and then say, Jesus is coming. You guys need to get ready. And as these have gone out, they have performed miracles that have amazed them, and they have done so in order to preach that the kingdom of God has come near to you. This is uh, what he said to tell even the towns that rejected him. It says you are to tell them, well, you've rejected us, so we have wiped the dust off our feet. But just know this, the kingdom of God came near to you. That leads me to talking about the 70. What is the point of the 70 or the 72? Um, The number 70 is very significant all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, And it, it appears in a bunch of different places. And there's a theme that we can see through them. And I think that there's one specific occurrence that we can identify as most important to to this passage. But when we see the number 70 uh, as a gathering of 70 people, um, there is a, a funny thing that happens in that in almost every occurrence where there's a, a, an occurrence of the number 70, we have a confusion in texts about whether it's the number 70 or the number 72. So an interesting, when you look up the Greek text and try to read through the questions of, well, do the texts support the number 70 or 72? They say, this passage is singularly difficult to figure out because there is ample evidence of both numbers. And part of the reason for that may be the historical problem of the fact that over and over, whenever there's a 70, there's a, some other text that says it's 72. So the answer probably is that, that, that providentially God has decided that we should never know the answer in any of these passages because both numbers are good enough to mean the same thing. I think you just have to rely on that. The number, uh, 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 the number of nations in the book of Genesis, in, in Genesis chapter 10 when it talks about the sons of sons of Noah, there are 70 sons listed who are considered the first nations. Uh, You also have um, Jacob who goes into Egypt. Why does Jacob go into Egypt? Because they were starving and one of his sons had been placed on the throne almost, was second only to Pharaoh, his son Joseph, and Joseph's brothers had sold him there and now they had to go back they, they are, their trickery is found out, they're exposed, and in all the midst of that, Joseph saves them and says, you know, God was doing this actually in order to save you, and I want you to bring my father back, and Jacob and the 12 tribes, the 12 sons, come into, come into Egypt, but it says in there that Jacob, Jacob came into Egypt with 70 persons. And so there is a specific number, 70, that is the number he came in with. So he first, it's the 12 that goes there, 
because of the one, and then because of the 12 going there, then the 70 go there, and then he comes out as a great nation. And this kind of a pattern shows up uh, multiple times. But the most important, uh, I, I don't want to even forget to tell about the fact of the Septuagint. Do you, the Septuagint, and this is not what I was saying was the most important, this is just the afterthought that I want to not forget about. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was what Jesus was reading out of in Greek. If he was reading in Greek, if he was reading in Hebrew, he could have been reading out of the Hebrew Bible. But they had, they had available to them the Greek translation in the dispersion of the Jews in the Greek world. And it had been done, and by this is actually not likely to be true at all, but there was a mythology about its writing that said that 70 or 72, they're not sure, 70 or 72 scholars got together and all translated the Old Testament into Greek at once, and when they got back together, lo and behold, they all had exactly the same translation. Um, this is a, said in order to bolster its reliability. Well, that's, nobody really thinks that's true. And this is not part of Scripture, so this is not an issue to contend with. Um, but the number 70 as a gathering of 70 elders was used and was meaningful to these Jews as a symbol that the Word of God was being transmitted. It was a symbol of the authority of God having come near and that it should be trusted. The Word of God should be trusted. And so that is, that is part of the process is that there are 12 and then there are 70 and they are all witnesses together of the miraculous and visible presence of God. And then those people ensure that the people listening all know, we all witness the miracles, here are miracles, here is your uh, reason to have confidence in the, in the text, in the transmission of the Word of God that we are handing to you. And so this is where this comes from in the days of Moses, where uh, Moses went on to the... Uh, First of all, Moses went on to Mount Sinai and took 70 men with him. God told him to gather 70 men of the elders of, of Israel and to have them come onto the mountain with him. And then Moses, and, uh, Moses went up further, received the word of God in the, in the law from God, and then came back down to the elders and they all, it says that they stood as it were on a sapphire pavement in the presence of God. This is halfway up the mountain. Imagine halfway up the mountain, they have a vision together of being in the presence of God himself on a sapphire pavement. And it says they ate and drank before the Lord. So this is a big thing to have witnessed. Now, everybody in Israel has been witnessing the cloud on the mountain, and the sound of blaring horns, and the lightning. But now these men have come up, and they didn't get to go into the presence of God when he was giving the law itself. But they did get to eat in his presence, in the presence of a miraculous vision that they all shared, 
and they were able to come down and say, we can vouch for Moses. He's not making this up. So the transmission of the confidence of the, or the confidence of the giving of the word of God is made strong by the witness of these 70 people. This happens again when Moses is being burnt out in ministry in Numbers 11 uh, by having to judge between the people. And he's getting burnt out. Of course, we remember earlier, all the way back in Exodus 18, Jethro gives him advice. You need help. You need to appoint elders. But here in Numbers 11, he is getting burnt out, and God tells him, go get 70 men of the elders to help you with the ministry. So God's saying the same thing that Jethro said. In uh, Numbers 11, he tells them, he tells him to, uh, I want to turn to this, uh, Numbers 11, around six, verses 16 to 24, because there's something interesting and similar to this, this passage. He says, the, the Lord said to Moses, gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. That's verse 18. I'll skip down to verse 24. Uh, So Moses went out and told the people the word of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Now, Here's the the fly in the ointment here. Now, two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad. And the spirit rested on them. And they were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, so they prophesied in the camp. I want to point out what I'm almost certain it's saying here is that these are Moses only ended up with 68 of the men. Or he ended up with 70 of them and there were 72. I'm not sure. Uh, But two people who were supposed to be included, they had been chosen and their names had been written down. They were enlisted, enrolled, registered as part of the elders who were supposed to witness this miracle with Moses, they were still back in the camp. And when God put the Spirit on the the elders surrounding the tent, He also put it on the registered men in the camp. And uh, Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant to Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Well, when Jesus has been uh, 
giving ministry to the 12 and to the 72. In, in chapter 9, there's a section, or I maybe need it back up to 8, I'm not sure. But there's a section where the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, we saw some other disciples going around and preaching, and they're not with us. And Jesus, and he's, he, they're wanting to know if they should stop them. And Jesus says to them, if they're not against you, then they're with you. It's very similar. He's saying, I'm doing work. If they're not arguing with you, if they're not teaching the opposite thing as you, then don't worry, they're with you. So they too are registered with Jesus. And I think that that all comes around to an interesting point when Jesus has his disciples come back amazed at what they could do, at the miracles that they're using as evidence of his coming authority, his kingdom coming near. And they say, wow, this is amazing. He says, you know what's the most important part? You're counted with me. Now, I want to point out here, we are, this situation is unusual, the sending out of the 72. They are, for a specific time in history, they were being called to be miraculous witnesses to set up Jesus' ministry in the towns before his crucifixion. We are in a similar situation in that we preach the gospel. We are not in a similar situation in that Jesus doesn't give us all miraculous powers. Before you preach the gospel to someone, you do not have to demonstrate miracles of healing in order for the gospel to be preached. That was very specific. And there's what's the specific difference between 70 elders with Moses, 70 elders with Jesus, and regular people talking about the Word of God? Well, at some point in history, somebody had to witness miracles of a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud and a crossing of the Red Sea and trumpets and a cloud on the mountain and go up there with Moses and say, yeah, we saw it with our own eyes. This guy does have the authority to tell you what God says. Do not defy the word that Moses claims for God. Because Moses speaks for God. That's not to say that Moses was sinless, but that is to say that when Moses speaks for God, you better listen. Because we saw, we saw the miracles that accompanied it. We saw the power of God when God came near. These disciples did the same thing. And since then, since the, the time of Moses, we have had a train of Scripture which has been attested to by the same train of the same group of people. And since the time of Jesus, we had the apostles who were doing miracles and writing Scripture. And the Bible itself gives us indication that when the Scripture was done being given, the superabundance of miracles would be over. But during the time it was being handed to us, somebody needed to say, we can't argue with the miraculous power of God. This is the Bible. This is God's word. It does need to be followed. Now, you and I trust the same witnesses. We trust those witnesses and what they said about Jesus. But what is not different 
what you have in common with those elders is that God works in and through you. God works through you when you speak the word of God to your friends, your family members, your neighbors, your co-workers, even to your enemies who you have the power to love by preaching the gospel to. Those people may come to know Jesus. Those people may even get healed if you pray for them. May. But the word of God is confirmed by God to the people. And when you see amazing things happen, you may say, man, God, I never thought I would actually see people come to know Jesus. And he says, it's great, isn't it? But the best thing, a thing I want you to rejoice the most about is that you know me. Because some people will reject you. Jesus said to his disciples, I'm sending you out as sheep amongst wolves. You need to trust me to take care of you. Well, having said all that, I feel like it is, it is important to, to answer the question, if he says the utmost thing we are to rejoice about is knowing him, then let's ask the question, how, how can I know Jesus? How can a person know Jesus? If you already know Jesus, which is if you are most of us who are members, have been part of the church for our lives, it doesn't hurt to review. How do you know that you're a Christian? And actually, I want to point out that many Christians end up having fears that the, somehow they have missed the boat and they're not actually Christians. And I want to assuage that. I want to help you with that feeling by reminding you what it is to be a Christian. Number one, believe the gospel. Jesus, the rightful king of Israel, son of David, being God and being sinless was a perfect offering and atonement for our sins. And for that, he went to the cross, condemned by Herod, condemned by Rome. But in dying on the cross, he was proven to be the Son of God with power. When the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead, and in that one action, he overcame Rome and he overcame Herod, but more importantly, he overcame the devil and sin and death. And he will never die again. And he will always be king. And he is coming again to bring everything in the universe back into order. And he will raise those who are his to eternal life, to live forever in a sinless, deathless, demonless world. And if you believe this and swear loyalty to him, 
then you are safe. You will be forgiven all of your sins. In fact, it is important to recognize that the gospel says you are a sinner, and that means sins themselves are not the obstacle. They are not the thing that the good people don't sin, the bad people do. Everyone sins. The question is, do you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, that he died to pay for sins, and that you swear, I, will, I, I swear loyalty to him. He is my king. This is my kingdom. Romans 10.9 says very simply, and I like to remind people of this who are worried about their salvation. And I have met a lot of Christians who are worried about their salvation over the years. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, the normal step that he commands, the thing that we're supposed to do to swear loyalty to Jesus is to be baptized. That's the normal step. That means become part of the church and publicly Confess your sins through the ritual of baptism. That's not an extra step. That's just swearing that Jesus is king. And uh, that baptism is a helpful reminder to you through the rest of your life that God publicly said, yeah, I accept. I accept you with all your sins. Not that I don't care about them. I cared enough to have Jesus die to pay for them and to be raised to new life to help you every day put those sins to death. And a second and most wonderful reminder that you are God's is the Lord's Supper. If you are baptized, you must take the Lord's Supper. It isn't optional. It should not scare you as many fear that somehow the Lord's Supper is going to, is going to condemn them because of the secret sins in their heart. That is a misreading of 1 Corinthians 11. Unless you're using the meal as a covering for gross, explicit, public rebellion against God, then 1 Corinthians 11 is not something that should scare you. Unless you're using the Lord's Supper as a way to get permission to sin, and unless you're using it to shame poor Christians or to exclude some other Christians, then Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians 11 does not apply to you. What does apply to you about the Lord's Supper is, it is a meal that says you're a sinner. And it is a meal that says you are forgiven. And when you take it, God every week says, in your baptism, I came to you and I said, I do. I do. I do accept you. I do forgive you. I do save you. Every week when you come to the Lord's table, he says, I still do. You're still forgiven. In fact, if you are plagued by the thought that you can't stop, you can't stop the habits of your sins, the best thing you can do is come to the Lord's table and say, God forgives my sins. I am not trapped with them. 
I don't have to repeat them. I am free to live for him. Let me tell you some of the most precious words in the entire Bible. I say to me, but I think these are to to any, any believer. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Rejoice that you belong to him. There is nothing greater than in the whole world than being registered as a member of the kingdom of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the undeserved, overwhelming blessing of being allowed to be a a king's son, a king's daughter, someone who doesn't, we don't have any reason to to be um, in such a great position, but you have loved us and you have forgiven us our sins. Thank you for Jesus' death and his resurrection, and thank you for calling us to you. And I beg you to help us to rejoice about this fact and help us to believe this fact. All of those that you have given your your signs, baptism and the Lord's Supper, all of us who believe that Jesus is raised from the dead, that we would not get sucked into doubts. Thank you for being gentle with those who doubt. In Jesus' name, I ask you to bless us in this thing. Amen.